Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 146 for Monday, June 21st, 2021. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is my friend Johnny, also known as Pixel Riffs on the interwebs. Hello, sir. Hello, and we've had a delightful chat already with our guest for today, uh, who we teased at the end of the last episode, and we're very excited that Brandon Pierce uh, is joining us, better known to the community perhaps as King B-Dogs. Uh, Brandon is our first Mojang team member to appear on the show, uh, is a Minecraft gameplay developer, but before that was known as the creator of the Ether mod and the Orbis mod. So if anybody has ever been that small child who threw a uh, bucket of water into a portal made of glowstone <laughs> and was wondering why that didn't work in vanilla Minecraft, uh, Brandon is to blame, and you can blame him on Twitter at King B-Dogs. Uh, Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to be talking with you two. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to have you here. It's, like I said, our first time talking to somebody from Mojang. We're going to be picking your brain about the stuff that you've been working on for the Caves and Cliffs update and probably a little bit of the Nether update as well. But uh, honestly, yeah, having uh, followed a bunch of you guys on, on Twitter for a while, it's just fantastic that you're willing to spend a bit of time talking to us and interacting with the community as often as you do. So, so big thank you for that. No problem. I love it. I love talking to the community. It's one of my favorite things to do as part of this job. So uh, every week we tend to do our quick login where we talk about what's new in our Minecraft life. Um, I guess we should probably start with our guests, but I want to ask, do you spend a lot of time playing minecraft in your time off or uh, have you been mm. diving into the caves and cliffs update the way everybody else has and seeing what your teammates and everyone has been working on or uh what else have you been playing during your vacation yeah it's tricky um i i think i overall play minecraft more now than i did before i joined mojang um <laughs> just because i have to like as as useful as it is to get feedback from the community i think it's also super valuable to just see how it feels in me as a player um in my off time i don't tend to play like for example i'm on vacation right now i haven't played too much minecraft i did play a little bit with um just a few co-workers we like set up a realm and um played like the first part of caves and cliffs and that was interesting just to see how it feels um, but it's it's hard to work on a game all the time and then also play it all the yeah. time. So <laughs> I, I try to avoid it if I can and do other things so my life isn't just entirely Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. I, I expect a lot of people have that perception, like maybe some, some younger people who are interested in game development, the idea that if you get to go and work on Minecraft, that just means you get to go and play Minecraft every day. And I suppose from mm. what you said, to a certain extent, that is true. But there must definitely be times where you shut it off and you're like, no, no more, no more Minecraft for at least yeah, a week. Yeah. And so you can recharge those batteries. And because of like the way you're playing it, it, it's arguable if you could even call it playing Minecraft. It's more like... I don't know. It's like you're. It's like I'm acting. I'm acting like a player might act rather than actually getting immersed and playing it just for the joy of it. Um, because I'm so interested in how the different features and systems that we've developed are working within the game. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily as enjoyable as as it might be. You know, pre Mojang when I'm just like 
playing it as a as a player not as a developer as somebody who has now seen the code you're like i understand how all of this works and why it works the way it does absolutely (laughs) the the, the mystery is is gone a little bit well uh Mm -hmm. yeah i mean good to hear that you've been having some time off at least and uh you know you've all been working very hard on getting caves and cliffs part one out and we know there is more to come but it's it's good to know that you can at least take a bit of a break for now yeah definitely um i've actually i mean apart from playing a little bit of minecraft i've been just uh scratching up on my skills with uh, the unity engine and just trying to make some like little games by myself just to learn some c sharp and understand how that engine works because i've done unity development before i actually made a like free game with my brother at some point because he's a game developer as well um but i haven't done anything from the ground up by myself so it's just been exciting to do something else uh creatively that's cool to hear it runs in the family though um how about you joel (laughs) what have you been up to this week uh i had a very busy weekend outside of minecraft i did get in there but i i didn't do a whole lot uh i logged in and uh went looking for a geode on the citadel looking to uh, expand the uh, Caves and Cliffs block palette. Uh, Didn't find one, but I did find an awful lot of dripstone, which is good because I didn't have that much to begin with, which prompted me to try to make a dripstone roof with the uh, the new dripstone block texture. Uh, That roof kicked my butt. It is not done. (laughs) I'm not entirely happy with it. Uh, The texture ended up being okay. Uh, I was working with, uh, I think it was gray terracotta and the... Um, and the dripstone, and then I think it was stripped dark oak. No, yeah, stripped dark oak that I put on the ends to try and give it some sort of frame. Uh, Normally, I've just been doing uh, stairs for roofs, so doing a full block roof was something new to me. Uh, And uh, I actually, I feel like the texture was working okay. It was more the roof geometry that I was having trouble with, specifically the top part, which actually had nothing to do with dripstone. But it was one of those stream sessions where you walked away feeling this is unfinished, it's going to require either some time away from stream where I can just focus and build or just another stream to try and sort it all out. Um, But it's Minecraft, so you can just, you know, take it down and put it back up again, however you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the other thing that I tried, uh, which I don't know why I haven't done this before, but um, I have Xbox Game Pass and I was wanting to kind of relax and play Minecraft, but it was just too hot in my studio. So I loaded up uh, a new world on the Bedrock Edition on the Xbox. I don't know how people play Minecraft with Xbox controllers. Because <laughs> the, the, my game session went something like this. No, not there. No, not there. No, don't, no not there. No, I, di- I didn't place it there. Anyway, uh, that aside, I had probably the neatest spawn and the neatest seed that I have ever experienced in Minecraft. I spawned in at the bottom of a ravine looking at an open geode and then i turned to my right and saw a, an abandoned mine shaft <laughs> so i was just like well wow. i'm home <laughs> yeah the, the only thing i had to worry about later on after making sure that the minecraft mine shaft was blocked off i did find some cave spiders scurrying around i was like nope i can't even aim right now i don't need you causing me grief um, but i had to go topside eventually i had to build enough ladders to get out of the ravine because i needed food <laughs> It was the only thing that I couldn't find. I didn't get in any glowberries from the the mineshaft chests, um, but uh, it was an interesting experience to say the least. I was like, this is a really cool seed and I want to explore this because you just get sucked into that what's around this corner thing in Minecraft. But the fact that I was having so much trouble navigating was just, it was almost amusing, but also frustrating at the same time. 
Brandon, is most of your Minecraft played on PC or do you dabble on other platforms from time to time? Absolutely, mostly PC. Um, yeah. I share your experience with Xbox controller, but <laughs> uh, even worse than that for me personally, not for everyone, was playing on Android. That was rough. Just for me, touch controls in general for gaming is really something that I, I just can't. Maybe it's because I didn't grow up with it. You know, I grew up mm -hmm. with PCs my entire life. And now there are a lot of kids growing up with um, touch screens. And that's that's the way they play a lot of their games now. But for me, it's like I just I had the same experience. I'm like, I did not mean to place that there. I didn't mean to swing my sword. It's, it's really, really challenging. Yeah, I, I have that sense as well. And as an alumnus of the Xbox 360 edition, which I played for about six months before I moved to PC, I couldn't go back, I think. I think camera control alone is the thing that I would have the hardest time readjusting to because of yeah. PCs just being, you know, so easy with mouse sensitivity and so forth. You can turn on a dime and, and with the Xbox, with analog sticks, maybe you could up the sensitivity a little bit, but everything just feels so like measured as you turn like you're always turning at exactly the same speed and yeah i don't think i could react to stuff quickly enough to really play the survival game very well maybe a little bit of creative mode here and there but like you mm. i think it would just be a little bit frustrating trying to uh, break and place everything yeah so what have you been up to this week johnny uh i'm still gathering copper building blast furnaces and trading with my server mates on the empire's smp um i've been doing a bit more building there with working with sandstone and copper together which is a palette that i really love now I've discovered that dripstone makes for some really nice uh, wind-carved rock formations in the desert. Um, I can see it used in kind of canyon builds and that kind of thing, and so I'm wondering if my server mates who settled in mesa biomes are going to be using some of those. Um, yeah, other terraforming projects are just kind of popping into my head now that I've had a chance to gather more dripstone and, and get hold of it. I'm not farming it yet because I think probably based on your warnings, Joel, about it being incredibly slow, I think I'm probably going to try exploring for more of it and then see if I can get some from my server mates who are farming it already. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with how this build is coming together so far. Also using some of the most expensive blocks that I've ever built with. I put a diamond block and some beehives at one end of it as I was designing it in creative and thought, yeah, I'll go with that. And I'm talking the bee nests that you get from trees out in the wild not like the the player made beehive so yeah those are those are kind of difficult to build with it turns out but uh really enjoying the combination of the two of them and uh, in my hardcore world i'm working on auto sorted storage which is great until it means going and finding the wood types i don't have yet so right now i'm in the process of tracking down a jungle and a savanna biome which are the last two overworld wood types i need to uh, complete my storage filters and actually be able to farm every single type of wood. I, I still need to track down a warped forest in the nether, but that might be another job for another episode. Looking at the, the screenshot that you shared with the, the desert build, uh, I love the dripstone, the stalagmites. Uh, they, they read almost as like cacti or bushes, like a different kind of plant as opposed to a stone stalagmite. Yeah, I've been looking at ways to incorporate the builds into the surroundings without just putting bushes everywhere, which I've done liberally in in this picture. <laughs> but um, I, I find that if it's just kind of, if, if it becomes an automatic reflex to like, oh, I'll just kind of hide the join between the building and the, the ground with a few leaves here and there, it just starts to become so repetitive that I, I start to lose interest in it creatively. And so I started mm. messing around with other blocks and, you know, piling sand up against the side of things with slabs and stairs 
And then I thought, we'll give Dripstone a try. And yeah, I was just really happy with the results. So yeah, mm-hmm. when, whether it comes across as like more of a, a foliage kind of vibe because of the shape of pointed Dripstone, or if it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the rock formations kind of forming around it a certain way or some kind of geological activity has caused it, the, the law for it is going to vary. But I think in terms of the color palette, it's quite complementary and adds something very different to what all of the, the leaves are doing. I'm surprised how well the copper goes with the sandstone, actually. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I've, lo- I've wanted to work with sandstone and a greenish color palette for a while. And I always think the two, uh, the, the pairing of sandstone and prismarine worked super well so copper was just kind of a logical extension of that and Mm. the the gradient you can make with copper is just so satisfying to me um i've also started pairing fences with it so we've got uh we've got um so we've got acacia jungle wood and warped fences going in to kind of match up with some of the tones of copper still missing one that really matches well with the uh the exposed copper but it's it's going pretty well so far i think i've been experimenting with uh the regular copper blocks so the non-oxidized and uh, stripped acacia logs for uh, what looked like copper stills in the basement of my keep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I was going to be able to do the whole thing with copper, but it actually turns out that the copper blocks, because of the rivets, they almost look better as like a, a bottom cap and a top cap. And then you have the vertical kind of striations in the acacia logs uh, that make it look like a a burnished metal or something like that in between. But it's really interesting how you look at acacia and most of the time in Minecraft and you think wood, but when you put it next to copper, it tends to look like like brushed metal instead. It's it's, it's mm. interesting kind of play on visuals. You can switch up the context of stuff like that so easily. And yeah, the, the, the copper is just kind of fascinating. Getting hold of a large amount of it has been a challenge, but I'm going caving basically every other day just to see if I can find more of it. And uh, we have a bit more... Uh, a bit more news on how we can potentially be uh, farming copper with this week's news. So let's roll into the news, because after that we have a ton of questions to get to from uh, ourselves and our listeners, kind of pick Brandon's brain about all of the uh, the stuff going on in Minecraft development. Yeah, absolutely. This week in Minecraft development, Minecraft 1.17.1, pre-release 1, was put out. I believe that was on Friday. Uh, blue axolotls can now only be obtained through breeding. Non-screaming goats now have a rare chance to produce a screaming goat when bred. Status effects on goats now also apply when the goat is jumping or ramming. The uh, drop rate for copper ingots has been raised from drowned to 11% plus 2% per level of looting. Powder snow now fills cauldron two times faster than it did before. It's still pretty slow though. Zombies, zombie villagers, husks, and drowned will no longer pick up glow ink sacks. So not a lot of uh, changes, just a, f- a few tweaks here and there. A number of bug fixes, of course, and those are all going to be listed on the Minecraft.net article that we usually have linked in our show notes. I love two things about this. Well, I, I love all of it, really. But um, for a start, the patch notes having a sentence like, non-screaming goats now have a chance to pro- <laughs> produce a screaming goat. <laughs> just like, it is born and it can only scream. It's just such a terrifying sentence out of context. But... Only in Minecraft. <laughs> right um but the obviously the, the the main thing i'm interested in is the drowned dropping more copper this is actually bringing it up in line with um the rates that you get on bedrock edition and i know bedrock edition dro- drowned spawning works differently they are in some in some occasions the uh, the bane of players existence on bedrock edition but mm. um 
it has a different approach to spawning the drowned, but potentially uh, a lot more copper can come out of drowned farms, which I think is something players are keen for because caving, while it's very productive for copper, is not always going to be everyone's speed and the need to have a renewable source of rare materials like that makes sense when the copper in the world is technically finite. Uh, no huge veins for us uh, quite yet, but um, a lot of research has been gone into with the technical community for how to farm copper more efficiently, and just the other day Nembon released a video on a copper farm which actually gets really good rates for copper using the reinforcement mechanics of zombies on hard difficulty. So if you punch a zombie, if you deal damage to it but you don't kill it, it spawns more zombies sort of in defense, to, so you get that kind of zombie horde created. And just rigging up a fairly large area around a zombie spawner to then allow for those reinforcements to spawn when snow golems throw snowballs at zombies, you end up with a system that can effectively avoid the mob cap and just bring tons of zombies into one place, drown them, and then the player kills them for, for looting drops and, and everything else that... Uh, zombies from spawners can provide which is not tridents and nautilus shells unfortunately but is a whole lot of copper in 117 and potentially even more in 117.1 that's really cool I, I didn't think of that particular method of like using zombies the community has been doing a lot of kind of number crunching when it comes to you know a naturally spawned drowned going to be better can we you know take them out of the mob cap by putting them through nether portals various different approaches and honestly i'm probably going to still build a river biome in the sky drowned farm because i need nautilus shells to make lots of conduits for the stuff i'm building because again i've chosen to make myself you know make, make the stuff i'm building ridiculously difficult but i think it's it's neat that there are still mechanics out here that we can play with and that players haven't necessarily worried about because they haven't needed this amount of drops from a zombie type of mob before it's effectively like using zombies as an iron farm when an iron farm would have done um but yeah it's it's a, a really cool mechanic and outside of that i'm sure the changes in 117 are still going to make it at least a little bit more viable for the average drown farm to uh, produce a bit more copper mm -hmm. um uh I had to look this up, but uh, previously the Java edition drop rate was 5% and an increase of 1% per looting level. So it's more than doubled. Yeah, it was a maximum of 8% and now it's a maximum of, I think, about 17 So potentially, mm. yeah, a, a lot better. Um, one other thing I wanted to draw people's attention to because this was hilarious. Um, the status effects on goats now applying when the goat is jumping or ramming. Olraf put out a video on Twitter that perfectly demonstrates what this is with uh, a goat attacking a creeper on a mountaintop. And if you give it a speed potion, the creeper disappears over the horizon. <laughs> it just gets rammed off this mountain and it travels probably, you know, it's knockback 10 levels of distance. It's absurd. And so I can see people having a lot of fun with goats and either like, you know, traps for other players or just playing around with mechanics like this. Giving them jump boost makes them jump about three times as high and they can already jump pretty high. Uh, so I'd recommend, we, we're going to link that video in the show notes if anybody hasn't seen this yet. Go and check out Olraf's video on uh, goat ramming because it is it is next level stuff. When it comes to those kinds of videos, Brandon, like is that something that an individual developer would just take it upon themselves to go and do? Or is that something that is part of like like a greater social media plan? It just seems like it's such a fun <laughs> thing. If it was part of your just daily routine or something that you had on the list of do it. 
like I would imagine it would be like just champing at the bit to get that done <laughs> during the days. Like I can't wait to do this goofy video. It's super spontaneous. We don't have like a we don't have rules around it. I think there are some guidelines, like unofficial guidelines within the team of like if we're going to show something on Twitter that maybe hasn't been announced yet or hasn't been um, officially confirmed within the community, um, we do our best to at least ask within the team first and say like, hey, do you think this is okay to post out on Twitter? Um, that way that, you know, if, if there is any reason why we wouldn't want to, then we can catch it beforehand and not do it. But otherwise, no, I mean, there's no like official like rules around it. We just kind of post whatever we're working on and I think that's been really successful in being able to cultivate a community um, and, and a community interaction with the, with the developers so that we actually are talking to everyone and it feels a bit more organic rather than just being sort of like a corporation, you know? Yeah, mm. I, I would agree. It's it's really great having stuff, A, straight from the developers, and B, the developers just sharing cool stuff they've found as though, you know, a player has found it in that sense. Like, it's it's uh, better than all of the kind of, here is something fun you should consume being handed down from on high. It, it feels a lot more personal that way. Yeah, and we also try to only post stuff that we personally worked on. Um, like, let's say if Oraf worked on something, it wouldn't be cool for me to just randomly post videos of goats when he's the one that actually worked on it so um you know we try our best to uh let the people who worked on it actually shine and, and have their their moments to actually present it to the community no, nobody gets to post cool things about lightning rods otherwise you're stealing their thunder um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Um yeah, the the other the other cool thing from this uh this change log is zombies and you know anything else that can pick up uh mob drops not being able to pick up glow ink sacks. I will honestly say that zombies are probably my second best source of glow ink after just finding it randomly in caves <laughs> after after glow squid have died. So, um I haven't gotten around to figuring out the mechanics of farming glow squid yet, but I I, I'm glad to hear we're not going to end up with more persistent zombies as a result, because the, the amount I find glowing in caves and think, well, a zombie could have picked that up, it's mm. uh, good to know that stuff like that is being amended, at least. Yeah, it's a bit unfortunate that, like, with with the kind of water sources that we have underground in part one, and how derpy squids are in general, <laughs> the glow squids just die, and it, it's kind of one of those things that because squids are already, you know, they're just like that the behavior is, is quite bad to be honest um it would be nice to fix eventually i think but as of right now with the way part one is it'll be much better in part two when you have the aquifers around and that you know there's large spaces of water and they're not going to get trapped so often or just like spawn in a, in a water stream and die from suffocating <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that you can tell had to be some sort of compromise because you were so keen on sharing glow squids with everybody and mm -hmm. honestly like being able to get hold of glow ink and use it now has been fantastic with all of the recent changes that were made to it. But yeah, I can I can see how it's one of those features that really needs to be seen in the context of part two to to get the the full effect of it and in you know in in a few months time hopefully when part two arrives you know nobody's going to really remember oh that one time glow squid ended up dying in caves so much because they're <laughs> going to be so distracted by all of the cool stuff that's going to be underground from that point that uh, yeah, yeah i don't i don't think it will quite live in infamy in the same way that the flying squid will but we'll see <laughs> 
Not quite. So what do you think we move on to chunk mail, Johnny? Absolutely. Let's do it. Um, folks, if you'd like to email the show, the email address to reach out to us is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. And we've had a whole bunch of email this week, as you might expect, having such a, uh, a wonderful guest on the show. We've had lots of questions and some very, very good quality questions as well. So... Uh, thank you so much for those. This first one comes in from Shepard, who is a landscape artist member of our Discord. And the subject is developing the most popular game. <laughs> all right, so so uh, yeah, prepare for this one. Uh, hi, King B Dogs, Johnny and Joel. First of all, King B Dogs, congratulations on the successful release of a great new update. It made me excited to go out into my world and find all the new blocks and mobs, in particular all the Deep Slate ores. I was wondering, how does it feel to have your professional work, work that you're passionate about, scrutinized by such a large and opinionated community? And how does this influence the development process? In a Twitter thread a while back, you talked about how it would be great to be able to add more experimental things to snapshots, even if they might not make it into the game. Do you think that this would have helped with the development of some of the features planned for the Caves and Cliffs update? Is it possible to experiment with ideas like that where Minecraft Live already sets such high expectations for what the next update will contain? Maybe something similar to the combat snapshots would be a viable option for experiments, a separate development track with no large official announcements. The amount of feedback would likely be lower, but so would the expectations. Looking forward to hearing from you. Shepard signs off very, very quietly, I presume because <laughs> you're hunting wabbits. Um, <laughs> so a couple of questions to go into here. So let's tackle them uh, one by one. First of all, Minecraft being such a, a huge game and having this enormous community built in a community that obviously you've been part of for a, a very long time um but how does it feel to then have people pick apart your work after the fact mm. yeah it's always tricky to answer this question because on one hand it's kind of like almost an honor that you're making a game or working on a game that people care about so much and it's cared about so widely by so many people like that's that's huge and that's really it's kind of something that I wouldn't have ever expected. I would like, I would be in that situation in my life. Um, and it's great, but also it can be challenging because you need to find a way to filter out the, the criticism and the feedback. Um, and even within feedback that can be really nasty. Sometimes it's good to even look into those pieces of feedback and see what is the underlying cause for them to be so upset. Um, sometimes you get people that, you know, uh, don't give very constructive feedback or they give feedback that maybe it's constructive, but it's just kind of random. Like it doesn't really make sense why they're giving that piece of feedback. But then you realize that, oh, maybe they're this sort of player archetype and the game just doesn't fit for them in this particular way. Maybe we need to expand that area of the game more. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, again, it's really, really tricky for me. I've found that um, probably one of the most outspoken members of the team is Jasper Burstra, who's the, the art lead. Mm -hmm. He is often the one to uh, not necessarily push back on criticism, but kind of deconstruct the reasons behind a lot of the feedback that he gets. And I've heard him talk about you know reading between the lines um that, mm. that's something that i mean i can support this a bit with my experience as a youtube content creator my work is very public and uh with pretty much constant feedback through video comments some of it in inevitably sort of ends up negative and you learn to recognize patterns in that and sort of read between the lines mm. and 
from that you can start to steer things in a direction that the community wants while still satisfying yourself creatively it's it's a very difficult line to walk but when people give jasper feedback on textures and you know a lot of it is just them memeing about how the raw ore blocks <laughs> look like beans but then that can at least you know be, be to a certain extent feedback of like either people really like the fact that it looks like beans and that's a fun joke but also it still looks really good and that will help it stick in the mind or maybe i should take this in a slightly different direction so that they don't all look a certain way and um mm. i th i think that the team overall does a a phenomenal job of balancing this because otherwise i expect a flood of like negativity or what might seem like people nitpicking work that you're very proud of uh has got to get to you after a certain mm. amount of time yeah like in the example of the textures uh with with japa it's you know you see some feedback on like a particular texture that he shared and the opinions vary so widely like some people will say like it's the best version of the texture so far and then other people say it's the worst version of the texture so far <laughs> yeah and so I think when you get, like, when the opinions differ so much, um, I can't speak for Jappa, but what I personally do is try to focus in on what I was trying to do with that feature or that particular piece of work and try to hone in a little bit more on my creative vision um, and make the best thing that I can make. Um, and then that way, even if maybe everyone's super divided, at the very least, I've stuck to the vision um, that I you know started with from the beginning and hopefully it will be a better feature as a result of that at the end and that kind of rolls into the second part of shepherd's question about being able to make more experimental things which might not end up in the game and i feel like they've also outlined in this email that there is a lot of community expectation that anything we see in a minecraft snapshot is then going to be a feature for the future <laughs> and mm -hmm. anything that you know people even so much as tease on twitter everyone just gets really excited as though it's going to be added as a feature so you've got to tread quite carefully around a community like this but uh, maybe you can expand on that idea like how do you think that could work into the future of minecraft development do you think there is room for a an arena in which minecraft features are developed and tried out but ultimately not added yeah i mean I mean, first I'll start with like the reason why I think this concept could be interesting is even with features that have been announced, let's say like the Warden or Archaeology, um, we of course delayed them, especially Archaeology, that's not going to come out um, until much, much later. And uh, the Warden is not coming out in part one. So it would have been interesting if you know we could have snapshotted those earlier even though we knew that they weren't going to be in part one um and then we could have got feedback earlier and been able to iterate on it even if it's not going to make it at the the time that players expect and i think that could be you know it could be overall very positive but then again as as i mentioned in those twitter threads it's really challenging because players have expectations as soon as they can hold something in their hands, so to speak. As soon as they see it in front of them on their game, on their screen, they expect it to come. And if it doesn't, then, well, the pitchforks come out. Um, so what is the solution? I'm not really sure, but I think it's, it's kind of like it comes in two parts. One is cultivating a particular culture, I guess, within the community of like, features aren't set in stone um, and change should be expected even cutting should be expected i think that's one part and doing that i'm not sure how 
<laughs> uh, part two would be actually doing it in, in some fashion, whether it's like you said, uh, a separate combat snapshot um, or something like it. But yeah, it's just an interesting thing to think of because I think Minecraft as a game can go in so many different directions. And I don't know that, you know, we could try something crazy, but we don't necessarily want to uh, just keep it there as if it's 100% going to get in because it might not be the direction that we want the game to go in. But at the same time, we'd like players to be able to see and give feedback regardless. It's the kind of thing that you see a lot of people doing in the modding community already. And, and you'll know this from experience, but um, I, I think the sheer amount of directions minecraft can go is reflected in how diverse the amount of mods that get added in terms of theme in terms of content in terms of like expansion of the game or zeroing in on a specific feature and my my line of thinking with this is i i wonder what your thoughts are on um mods that basically take features that have been announced like the warden like the skulk family of blocks and try and emulate them for a mod based on what's already been presented to us through shows like Minecraft Live. Are you excited to see people trying to mock up the Warden before you're done with it? Or does that feel a little bit like, you know, people don't have the full vision of it yet? And so does it feel like a kind of a pale imitation of, of what you're working on? Uh, I think I would be... Um... I don't know. First of all, I think it's super awesome. Um, I think anyone who like gets super inspired by something in Minecraft and tries to create content, whether it's mods or textures or whatever, I think it's amazing. Of course, in saying that, it is important that people who play those mods recognize that, yeah, as you said, they don't have the full vision. Um, maybe the mechanics like in very specific areas aren't exactly the same. But that it's it's harmless. It's it's still really cool to me. I, I don't really have any problem with it whatsoever. Um, but to your point before, I think modding in general kind of is like what I'm talking about, where you just kind of throw out an idea and there's no stakes to it. Like people can choose to download the mod, um, or they can choose not to download the mod, or they can download it and then remove it later. Uh, in in that sense, people can just throw out ideas and we can find kind of the, the gems from all of those thousands upon thousands of ideas. Um, I think it would be cool to have something like that within uh, vanilla itself um, in regards to trying many random ideas. Like just as a crazy idea, just off the top of my head, what if randomly we snapshotted trying, you couldn't sleep anymore. You can't change, you can't pass it the next day. Obviously it's a terrible idea, but that's kind of the extent of like how big I think we should be able to go with just trying random things and seeing how the community reacts. Maybe they'll they'll see it and they'll go, this is terrible. Why would you ever think of doing that? But that's still good feedback. That that means we know that 100% we should never do that in the real game. With um, the separation of Caves and Cliffs parts one and part two, uh, the team has started publishing a data pack that adds in some of the features which are already being worked on for part two to include, you know, different world height and uh, bigger caves and everything like that. Do you think data packs like that with features which are closed off to the standard base game but could be opened up with a data pack might potentially be a way into that? Or does that feel like, you know, just the same thing as snapshots, basically? Yeah, I guess it just depends on where the technology is. I mean, the reason why data packs can do that is because a lot of the world generation is exposed to data packs. Uh, but something like creating a new block, that's 
at the moment just not something you can do with data packs um so if if we can do it i don't see why it couldn't be an option uh whether we'd want to do it i think that would be a, a you know, full team decision. So I'm not sure on that. It's really fascinating getting all of your thoughts on this. And uh, <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you so much again, Shepard, for the email. Joel, how about you uh, read our next one? Sure. Uh, next email comes in from Rabelais and it is about aging blocks. Hello, Johnny Joel and King B Dogs. With the introduction of weathering copper in 117, is it at all likely that we'll see an aging mechanic added to other blocks? I'm especially interested in seeing weathered wood and stone, but I'm not sure if that adds too much complexity for the game to keep track of. Is there a tactical reason not to have this as a normal block variable? Your primed and painted friend, Rabelais. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, I think with, with the aging mechanic, one of the good things is that we have it in the game now. So if we wanted to you know, add a new block, which utilize that we could, from a design perspective, whether or not we'd want to, uh, it's challenging because one of the, the principles that we have um, within the team is making sure that every new feature or every um, block that we add has a unique mechanic that sets it apart. To me, that doesn't necessarily mean that there would never be any more aging mechanics in the game. Um, but at the same time, I think we're very careful about introducing blocks that are similar. Um, so. I know this This is usually the answer of like a maybe or a not yes, not no, but it kind of is like that within the team because we always have exceptions to our own rules. That happens. Um, but then we also do have our rules that we try to stick by. Um, I think it's uh, it, it could be really interesting. As a player, I've been really enjoying the age mechanics of Copper so far. I think because it's been kind of an intriguing puzzle <laughs> to work mm -hmm. out how it interacts with blocks nearby, how you can spread out Copper blocks to age them faster, or if you want to uh, let them age naturally or pre-age them to achieve a specific effect. It kind of... Uh, it, it's a, a very in-depth mechanic, and so... I think naturally players think, well, what if this applied to everything else in the game? Mm. And obviously that kind of goes a little wild in terms of scope and also maybe takes some of the the special nature of copper away a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it's good to know that the team is at least going to give some consideration to mechanics like that being open in future. And maybe if this is a mechanic of another block that also has some other unique aspect about it it can be viable for the future so that it's mm -hmm. not just aping copper but with a different material yeah it's definitely in the end it's about value um if we start introducing more blocks that have the same mechanic there there is a question of would players want to mine copper as much if it, it it's difficult because copper is a decorative block um right now for the most part and as a result of that you know it being decorative even if there was another aging block with, with it being de decorative, maybe they look very different. So they're both valuable in their own rights. But it's still a question that I would ask if considering that sort of feature. The thing that Rabelais mentioned just kind of tuned me into this in that the way that you can strip a log with an axe and the way that you can wax or strip oxidation from copper with an axe, it almost feels like wood has an age control in the game. It doesn't do it naturally in the world under a time thing like copper does but it allows the player to say this is either going to look natural or it's going to look in some cases aged or in some cases mm. you know um new or or refined uh so it has kind of like a a, a time 
I guess, stamp that you can put on it by by saying this log has just been here as a log, or it's been here long enough that part of the bark has fallen off, mm-hmm. as a, you know sometimes happens with a rotting tree. And uh, I, I didn't realize the the similarities until until just now. Um, a follow up question that we got from Genius General O six. Uh, with regards to adding things like this into the game that are complicated, what are the biggest obstacles and challenges you encounter when adding features into Minecraft? It entirely depends on the feature. Sometimes it's really kind of smooth sailing. Um, it's you know a little simpler. Like for me, I would say uh, something like Soul Speed uh, Enchantment was pretty easy for me when I worked on it um, because we already have the enchantment system in there. Um, of course, it's unique. It's new. It interacts with soul soil and soul sand in a unique way. But it's it's relatively simple compared to something like the Strider, which the Strider has a whole new way of moving in the world. We had never had a mob beforehand that could actually physically stand on lava. Um, so that got a lot more technical. Um, and we had to consider that with the design as well. And then something like the Warden, which is even more complex, it has a whole new you know system of, of uh, using its uh, tendrils to sense movement and, and kind of sounds uh, in the environment. Um, so because of that, even more technical. So I'd say when it comes to designing, one of the one of the things that is really challenging is balancing between I want to do something new with this feature to kind of you know bring Minecraft closer to to something you know kind of revolutionize it in, in each update, um, but at the same time not going overboard in that the tech is so advanced and so crazy new that we just can't get it done. Um, and finding that balance can be really, really tricky. And it's always easier to, to design or develop um, new features that utilize existing systems and existing tech within the game. Do you think that moving ahead to Java 16 is going to help in that regard with the technical challenges moving forward? Uh, in terms of rendering, uh, uh, from what I'm aware, I'm not someone who is specialized in rendering, but you know, talking to people like Felix, who is also on Twitter, um, he definitely has kind of said to me, like, you know, there's there's definitely a lot more we can do now. Um, it's it's it kind of opens up the gates to the possibilities of rendering within the game. It's going to be a slow process, of course, but you know, we now have more tools at our disposal. Let's move on to our third email. This one comes in from Toogie Fox, and the subject is a time management question. Hiya, Mr. Riffs, Duggan, and Dogs. Uh, with the multiple projects that Pixarifs has going on currently, Joel's busy podcasting and streaming schedule, and the release of Caves and Cliffs Update Part 1 for King Bee Dogs, I've been thinking a lot about time management. How do each of you manage projects and content online, as well as balancing things like sleeping, eating, and engaging in family time? How do you keep it from getting on top of you? How do you not get burned out and run out of inspiration? And how much of your schedule has changed with lockdown situations around the globe changing a lot of normal day-to-day activity? Thanks for the podcast. It has been a blocky staple of my online media consumption since about episode 50. Love what you do. And remember, if even if you get weary and sick of trying, that old game Minecraft just keeps chunking along. Yours, Tuggy Fox. <laughs> I think that's... Is that an Old Man River reference? That's such a... <laughs> that's an interesting... It's a deep cut there for, from Tuggy Fox. But um, obviously, Brandon, we want to get your opinions on this first. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, like, you know... Talk as as much or as little about the pandemic side of things as you want to, but how difficult has it been to uh, adjust 
all of the the busy work of working for the Mojang team with hmm. uh you know home life and and a move for you as well because you're yeah. certainly not a, a Stockholm native <laughs> no um yeah I mean the thing is even before the pandemic um and even before Mojang I would say that time management is something that I've been you know trying to improve on as as I grow and learn as a person um, so when the pandemic hit, I think it was like the the ultimate boss challenge almost uh -huh. uh, of, of time management. Um, it It's kind of a cop-out answer, but like for me, it's still a learning process. Like it's not like I've got it figured it out. And I think maybe that's what it is for a lot of people right now is that they're trying to learn and get better every day, but um, we don't have the answers necessarily. It's kind of too strange of a world right now. Um, for everyone to just know what to do for me what has helped a lot has definitely been this vacation um being able to just detach myself from work for a bit um and try not to think about it uh, as much has definitely helped me kind of recontextualize why i work on the game um, because i think when it comes to any sort of creative work you need to have a very close relationship with the reason for why you do this um, and for me, I think if I work too much and I don't manage my time properly, let's say I do like a bunch of extra overtime, um, I think I start to lose sight of that reason. Um, and it just kind of becomes like, what am I doing this for? You know, like, uh, I think it's, it's much better if you can get back to that, to, to the, the reason why you started working at all. I think to their great credit, Mojang seems to have a very healthy company culture about time management as well and balancing mm -hmm. time. Um, it's clear from the fact that the team has been outspoken about wanting to avoid crunch. And, you know, I, I expect there are a lot of very healthy business practices going on just based on the fact that they've been so open about discussing, no, we're not doing crunch. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that probably helps is having a... Uh, a kind of corporate culture that encourages you to be a human being <laughs> a little yeah, bit more yeah. often um, and, and not spend all of your time working yourself to the bone. Um, for, for my part, having been self-employed for a while and not just doing Minecraft YouTube stuff, but having, you know, effectively been working freelance from home, doing email support and stuff, um, giving yourself a routine is obviously a very important part of it you take breaks you have a schedule and like brandon you make sure you have days off or vacation you know um it can be difficult when you're pressured to constantly produce something and you're working in the public eye if you go away for a while everybody assumes that you've vanished off the face of the earth because it's the internet and they're used to things just kind of coming to them in a, a constant stream um and so the old work smarter not harder adage comes into play um, even just in my own Minecraft stuff, I've been using creative mode to design stuff more, so I'm spending less time just kind of doing trial and error stuff in survival builds, and that cuts down on the amount of time I need to record an episode because I go in with more of a plan, and that leaves me more time to edit the video afterwards if it needs it, or gives me more time to just spend relaxing in the evening after I'm done instead of staying up until past midnight to get a video done. So it, it's really all about going in with a schedule difficult though that is when a game as organic as minecraft is involved and you really have to you know roll with what the game gives you at certain times i think it's it's very important to understand what your own limits are and what the limits of the game are and try and find the the most healthy combination of the two yeah i think 
having a schedule working from home because uh, I've been doing it for 10 years now and not just for Minecraft and that kind of content, but for podcasting, for um, my own artwork and my own design business. And the thing that I've learned uh, that you, it takes a while to get your mind out of it. And that is the the nine to five sort of mentality, which is fine if that works for you from home. But one of the advantages, if you are successfully working from home, if you can squeeze in an hour early in the morning or an hour later at night, it means that you can take that hour to have lunch with your mom or, you know, you are your own boss. You don't have to ask to take a 90 minute lunch break. You can just do it. As long as the deadlines that you have are being met, as long as the things are done uh, on time, then it doesn't really matter. And so I do tend to stick to a Monday to Friday. Uh, I've uh, been lucky enough that, you know, I've been able to take weekends off for a while uh, in term, from, you know, creative work that I do professionally. Uh, that break alone helps with a lot of creativity. Uh, and I know for myself, you know, with regards to um, the pandemic, you know, the last 18 months, um, the thing that I find challenging from a creative standpoint is that while I have all the time in the world to work from home, I'm not experiencing a lot of life outside. Like I'm not going for, like you're just, you're not seeing random goofy things on the bus. You're not going to a cafe and just observing the public. You know, you're just not around people that much. And I find that a lot of my creative influences, whether it's a joke or something silly I saw, whether it's just uh, observing a street scene as I, you know, meander down a downtown street, which again, I don't do very often now. Um, I'm not getting a lot of inspiration. So as someone that's a professional creator, I find that my uh, inspiration pool is running low. I'm not going to theaters and seeing a lot of, you know, movies. I, I haven't been spending a lot of time watching Netflix and things at home because I just, after the first six months of the pandemic, you're kind of done with that. <laughs> like you did, a, you do it a lot, you know, especially during the winter in Canada. So I find that just knowing your own needs uh, as to what you're, either work or your hobby requires of you, and then making sure that you get a balance, uh, I think is probably one of the things that helps me with time management. I don't really enjoy working late hours. I don't like working late at night. So I know that I have to make sure that I just don't spend the entire afternoon on the balcony reading a book at lunchtime. I have to make sure I'm back in the studio after a decent break, because otherwise I'll regret it later and I don't want to work until 11.30 p.m. <laughs> Brandon, you can speak to that a little because you moved to Stockholm, a city that I presume you hadn't really been to a whole bunch before, and nope. then a pandemic happened and you weren't really able to to get out and explore. So are you maybe looking forward to a time when you can, you know, go and see the sites and maybe have some of your your co-workers show them, uh, show you their favorite places to hang out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I really empathize with that, Joel, that, you know, not being able to just experience life has kind of creatively um, been a bit of a blocker for me. Um, and I think that's kind of what I was talking about with, you know, finding the reason for why you do all of this. I think if your life is only work, then you don't, I mean, what are you doing it for? Um, so for me, I think, yeah, just being able to experience life is kind of a way for me to actually understand why I'm so passionate about game design. Um, and, to what you said uh i think i yeah i'm super looking forward to being able to actually just get out again um, i did a little bit yesterday and that was really good but it was all um outside and you know being responsible um but uh it's it's challenging at the moment because the pandemic has just kind of 
yeah, messed everything around. I'm also looking forward to a time when we can go out somewhere and not have to clarify after the fact that we were being responsible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like yeah. everybody everybody has to preface discussions with like, I saw somebody the other day, but it was fine. We were six meters away from each other and we weren't yeah. shouting. So yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it's it's a shame that it has to happen in these circumstances. But hopefully, uh, we'll be on to bigger and brighter things. And maybe if you want to come back on the show uh, in future, we can chat about all of the places you've been able to visit around stockholm absolutely um in the meantime though we're going to move on to some questions that joel and i prepared ahead of time we've got a couple more questions that we can weave in from our community because again people have been very excited to uh, hear us talk to b dogs and once again uh, for the folks who sent those emails in thank you for such great discussion topics um i wanted to talk to you a little bit about your journey with programming and with minecraft because i presume that you found minecraft the way most other people did by you know just picking it up as a fun game to play so what was your mm -hmm. first introduction to minecraft did you find it independently were you recommended to it by friends and how did things go from there yeah so i got introduced to minecraft by uh when i was a teenager me and my friends we used to play lands a lot so we'd organize lands at um just each other's houses and uh, one time we were at one of my friend's house and it was super cramped like really really cramped it was this really tiny room with a gigantic bed so there was like one desk and no room at all and uh, we just kind of like put our pcs in any place that we could find and someone even <laughs> put their pc and the monitor on the floor and just gamed while like laying down um and yeah one of them had played started playing minecraft and i didn't know what it was or like what it was about it to be honest looked kind of bad to me like <laughs> graphics wise so i was like what how are people enjoying this um and then we at the time unfortunately there was no multiplayer um this is you know quite a long time ago before multiplayer was even introduced to minecraft at least in survival mode i think there was some stuff in creative beforehand um and we all just played our own single player worlds and just kind of experienced it with not really much preparation of what the game was really like and suddenly you would just like hear screams from one side of the room as someone has like encountered a zombie or a creeper exploding their base for the first time um, and i think for me what got me hooked was when i first played the game and i built a base like on a coast but it was kind of above a cave that i couldn't actually see like it wasn't poking out in the terrain and there was a dungeon spawner literally right underneath my base. So I kept hearing zombies all the time, like constantly. <laughs> and I was terrified. I, I didn't want to ever leave my house. So I just built this giant fortress. Um, and that got me hooked. Absolutely. Like as much as I've learned over the years to enjoy more the creative aspect of the game. Um, and it's really helped me bring out my creative uh, side. I think what really uh, gets me interested in Minecraft was just the the visceral immersion into what feels at first like a really childish game and then suddenly it gets very dark, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's cool that a sense of community was involved even then, just imagining you and your friends kind of crowding around a, a monitor and trying to yeah. figure out what this game was to begin with but sharing that experience even though you couldn't play multiplayer at the time um the, st the story of having having a friend with just like their you know monitor and and everything <laughs> wherever reminds me of that one splash screen that says any computer is a laptop if you're brave enough <laughs> that's just the the vision i have in my head is everyone just holding their own computer hardware so they can uh, yeah pretty much so they can play um 
so that must have been if it if multiplayer wasn't even introduced that must have been in the sort of pre-alpha days mm-hmm. so you're talking like 2010 ish probably i think it may have been infdev or intdev i can't remember it was a yeah. long time ago so uh so very early and at that point were you already interested in coding stuff of your own or was minecraft and developing mods really kind of the catalyst for that passion for you it's a long story but i'll try to like compress it all down as much as i can when i was very young i always used to make games by uh make games in quotation marks uh by drawing things on pieces of paper and then like cutting them out. So I used to play a lot of RTS games when I was younger. So I would draw units on paper, cut them out, and then align them like an army and then make games in my head. Uh, so that was my <laughs> first experience, tried to make a game. And then finally I got PowerPoint on my computer and I attempted to make uh, point and click adventures with PowerPoint using hyperlinks. Um, and that was that was strange, but somehow like I, created some things i create i tried to create command and conquer that failed terribly but i tried <laughs> um and then eventually the big thing for me actually was uh warcraft 3 uh so that game had something called the world editor which was basically a map editor but uh blizzard did this amazing thing with the world editor where they kind of exposed a bunch of things um through like regions and triggers and they had a sort of a gui like drag and drop programming and i didn't really know how to program or really even programming logic at the time but i did a lot of things like making a unit be able to walk in an area and then it would summon something to the side and so i kind of created like quote-unquote mods back then Um, So I never knew any programming up until Minecraft. And at that point, I was still super passionate about modding. I did a bunch of modding beforehand, um, but I didn't know how to program. And Minecraft could only be modded by learning how to program. Um, And I was intimidated because I really thought that in order to program, you had to be one, very smart, very two, very good at math, and three, just you know, understand how games work in general under the hood. Um, And so I just kind of looked up some tutorials of how to decompile Minecraft and add one new item. And I did, and it kind of spiraled from there. I didn't even read any books on how to program. I just kind of kept changing things in the code and seeing how that worked. And somehow that led me to being a developer now. (laughs) I don't know how, but it did. I think that's the most fascinating thing of, you know, starting out as somebody who barely knows anything about programming and, you know, you've done stuff with, yeah, map editors and stuff in the past, which can lead to some very exciting things. I mean, like those, uh, that that's basically how Dota started, right? Defense of the Ancients was like, it was a, a Warcraft 3 mod that is now yes. a, effectively a game in its own right. So a, a similar kind of story in a way. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's really cool that you can start off just kind of vaguely poking around and looking up tutorials and then you know cut to 10 years later and you're walking <laughs> walking through the offices of, of mojang in, in stockholm that's incredible yeah um, i mean it was a long journey still like i made uh one mod which we'll probably mention is the aether and then i made another mod called orbis later um but it was i only did like two major projects and i never really like did a lot of small tiny things I really tried to do like the biggest thing possible and then did it for like five years at a time, like big chunks of time and just learnt skills as I go. What inspired you to create the the Aether mod, uh, which is a, a question that came in from Electrix99 in our community? It's kind of a few different things. So 
the first mod I ever made was a mod called Minecraft Advance, which just added random things that I thought were cool, like as a kid. I added uh, obsidian tools, added dragon tools. <laughs> uh, I added like random things in the nether, like hellhounds and dragons and all these things. Um, and I learned a lot of this actually by just talking in an IRC community called Rissacraft. Um, and that had a bunch of really talented, really smart people who were actually, I don't know why, but they were surprisingly welcoming and um, accepting of like, if I had a question about this part of the code, they would try to, you know, help me out. And there, there came a point where there was a, a few different people that I was talking to that were, um, you know, giving me advice and we were just doing random things together. And there's a lot of names, but I'll try and randomly say some there was like 303 um i believe risigami was involved for a little bit uh kodaiki uh and many others that i can't remember at this very moment but there was quite a few people and we at one point were just like we want to add a new dimension to the game and i was looking through the minecraftforums.net and there was a suggestion thread about adding um the aether to some degree it wasn't exactly the same but it was it had the very same visuals it had this concept of it being a um a paradise but we kind of uh took that idea and uh tried to make it a little bit more hostile we had bosses in it we had progression through loot um, but a lot of the inspiration absolutely came from one of those suggestion threads um i wasn't super you know creative and unique until probably a lot later um, with my modding. At, at first, it was definitely a lot of just looking at the community, seeing what people love, because everyone wanted a new dimension and everyone wanted Sky Islands. That was like one of the top requests on the Minecraft forums. Um, so that's kind of what uh, sparked me to work on the mod. In vanilla Minecraft, there was planned to be a Sky dimension that I think eventually ended up becoming the end. So <laughs> it's really interesting to see how it can be taken in those two different directions and i believe the aether is still a project that's being worked on it's being developed by a different group now mm -hmm. uh were those I, I presume collaborators of yours before you got hired uh, at mojang how did it feel to hand off the project to them when you were hired on yeah so it's currently being developed by gilded games which is the group that we formed uh, a while back um they're still the same people it's not the same people as when i started the either like 10 years ago um because the team has just kind of swapped out and swapped in people over the years and i've been the one constant up until that point um and yeah it was a bit weird and a bit bittersweet actually saying like hey i've got the job like people were happy for me but then they're also like oh <laughs> we we don't have a programmer now to work work on it <laughs> um and I'm still in contact with them all the time because they're really good friends of mine. I mean, I talked with them for many, many years throughout my life. They're, they're pretty much, yeah, they're friends to me. Um, but I still think at the same time, they're very happy about it that, you know, I was able to make a career out of what I've been doing so far. Um, and I'm excited to see what they're doing. Like they're still, they're still working on it and setting up a plan for how they're going to continue developing it throughout the years. And it's kind of insane that a mod started so long ago is 
it's still being worked on. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, but it's like, wow, the community is just so passionate. And still, it still has a place in the community's collective memory as well. I mean, we were joking earlier about the, the glowstone portal thing, but it is true. Mm. It's, it's the kind of thing that it resurfaces on the Minecraft Reddit every so often, and everyone sort of chimes in with their nostalgic memories. But I think people see that stuff being revived, and it has an enormously long shelf life if people are determined to keep developing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did you make that transition from making mods for minecraft to actually working at mojang studios did did you apply was there you know were you approached by mojang was there a call to arms mm. that was sent out um i actually just did it the pretty standard way um the way that i kind of i i had actually applied before i officially got the job um from a, a second application later i applied originally for a more senior position which was probably shooting above my experience level um, but it was the only position at the time i'm like oh, i'll just give it a shot anyway um but after that after that got rejected um understandably i actually ended up joining another company in australia um to work at, in an incubation team where we basically worked on a bunch of um mobile games uh just like on the app store uh but we would try to come up with like new games new ideas that could be like uh new avenues for that company to um explore and so that was pretty cool and that was fun that was a way for me to get a bit more experience in the industry outside of just you know freelanced mods um but after that after i got about a year of experience from that i was you know I was getting very involved with the Minecraft community. I was going to a bunch of Minecraft lives. Um, I was at uh, the last Minecon Earth, I believe. And I was at the uh, Nashville Minecraft live. I've been to two at this point. And I was there representing as just a community member talking about modding with a few other really talented people um, in the modding community, like uh, Vasky, Drolkus, um, many, many people, King Lemming. Um, and I think from that point of just being so invested in Minecraft as, as a platform and as a game, I felt like I had the confidence to be able to try and apply. And I did. Um, and it was a long process because, I mean, first of all, if you apply, you have to accept being able to move over to another country. Um, they at that time don't really have like, you can't remotely work in Australia at Mojang. That's, that's not a thing. Um, and it went through many, many different interviews, um, you know, because there are so many members of the team, right, uh, that, you know, want to get involved in the interview process. Um, and there was actually a point where I did an interview at the uh, Minecraft Live, um, the last Minecraft Live that I attended, um, because I was already going to visit Sweden anyway to do an in-person interview. So because I was already going to Minecraft Live, I said, well, why not just do an interview there every all the most of the uh, mojang developers are going to be there it seems like a, an easy way for us to do an in-person interview without having to book a separate flight um and i think it was at that point after i did that in-person interview that things started to just click together and i it was kind of insane when i got the call finally like saying yeah you got the position uh when, when do you want to start uh, i couldn't really process it for many many days i i still I think I'm getting better at processing it now, but it's still kind of uh, 
a bit mind-boggling working at Mojang. Do a lot of your peers at Mojang have a similar story to you? Were a lot of them modders before? Like, I, I don't necessarily know uh, the sort of past credentials, as it were, of folks like Olraf and Felix and and a few of the other folks we've talked about today. Like, d does anybody else have a really similar story to yours or are they sort of pulled in from all over the place? So the closest person um, to me in, in that regard of having a similar experience is uh, Kojo, uh, KojoMax99, I believe, on Twitter. Um, his name's Corey, and he before has done many different mods, and one of his most popular mods is Tropicraft, and, which is also another Dimension mod, <laughs> funnily enough. So he had a very similar experience of most of the time um, he would work on mods and then eventually he applied himself, but he had uh, you know some experience in the industry um, beforehand, kind of similar to how I did. Um, so I think one of the things for me, I guess, noticing a pattern is you know get a, a small bit of experience in the industry first and then try applying like why not there's no reason why you shouldn't apply and even if you get rejected i mean it doesn't mean you can't apply again later after you've got more experience and uh, obviously as tropicraft goes it that's still running as well and has regular charity events through love tropics and i'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> you're still involved with a few of those as well so Absolutely. it's uh, it's really cool to see projects like that still like take a really prominent position in the community and lead the charge on you know charity fundraising events and stuff that's that's always super cool to see you've mentioned you know um applying and, and getting a little bit of experience you know before you you know apply to a, a studio like mojang studios um out of curiosity do you think there was any we'll say mistakes that you made early on uh, to give young programmers maybe a heads up on <laughs> Uh, I don't think this ended up affecting my performance in any of the interviews, but one of the first mistakes I made was having a really unstable internet. So the first internet I had, my uh, first interview I had, sorry, my internet dropped out. <laughs> so that definitely make sure you have a backup plan and to end up using data. Um, but more broadly than that, um, I think for me, I'm not sure on my particular mistakes but I would say in general, it is a very good idea to research beforehand how to take interviews. Um, this is something that I probably should have done a little bit more of just understanding how uh, you know interviews in the software industry tend to be conducted. What are the sort of questions they're going to ask you? And what are the sort of uh, answers that they're looking for? You know, How do you answer it? Do you give examples? Um, do you give examples of particular conflicts you had in the past and how you resolve them in good ways? Um, so just, yeah, really getting familiar with how um, you can approach those interviews and present your best self um, to them. When it comes to um, actually working for Mojang, you've talked a bit on Twitter about how the process of generating and iterating on ideas works compared to developing mods and how they're two very different processes i think this was in response to uh the the player criticism that modders could do similar things to stuff like the caves and cliffs update in a shorter amount of time and you had a fantastic response which honestly i have bookmarked on twitter so that i can remember <laughs> your arguments when people bring this up in discussions uh that i'm part of but um how does the process of developing stuff for Mojang compared to the process of developing mods. Um, I imagine the process is a lot more collaborative. Can you speak to that a little? Absolutely. 
Um, I mean, first of all, I, I just want to say that there are so many talented people in the modding community. It, what I say about, you know, the difference between developing mods versus developing the game is not to put down modders because, I mean, I was a modder myself. Um, there are extremely talented people in the community. I think the thing for me that is so different about working on vanilla is the stakes, you know, like if you add something, it's going to stay there most likely. And so because it's such a big game and it affects so many platforms and it affects so many players compared to a mod, which might only affect, I don't know, let's say 500,000 players, um, we have millions of players in Minecraft. And it's just, it's much bigger difference in terms of how the uh, particular features that you implement are going to impact um, users in the end. Um, and it is more collaborative. There are so many more people at Mojang that have different perspectives. Um, and more than the people at Mojang, I would say the stakeholders of Minecraft is the community. And just look at the community and how many different opinions they have. Um, I'm sure you have very different opinions on how a particular feature should be implemented versus some other random user. And um, we need to keep all of those perspectives in mind and try to find a middle ground that works for everyone while also you know thinking about our own creative vision at the same time so a lot of the times we fail the first time and we keep failing we keep failing until we find that last iteration that's like okay this really seems to be you know checking all the check marks and it seems to fit all the different player archetypes we want to satisfy here but that doesn't happen overnight um and compared to, let's say, a modder, you know, developing all of the content that we have in Caves and Cliffs over a week, that's missing all of the different iterations we did beforehand because we did that same, you know, let's say, creature 10 times, not one time. Um, and I think that's really the major difference. And it's not to say that mods don't iterate. They definitely do. But I think that there is generally much more pressure to get it right in vanilla Minecraft. And considering, yeah, like the legacy of the game has to be taken into account at that point because a mod can just be retired. <laughs> Whereas yes. like you don't retire features of the vanilla game. Historically speaking, the game is added to and very rarely, if ever, has something been flat out removed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, th I think that's something people don't always consider is that you are making changes or adding features which are going to be there in perpetuity forever <laughs> yeah and then it's going to buy us back as well because if it's a particular feature that has problems we need to design around it in like 10 15 years and uh, that's going to be a legacy problem for the rest of the game's life i think it is one of the things that makes the game so special though is adding features and then adding more stuff to them in future like mm -hmm. i i rave on this show about how much i enjoy that campfires then got the functionality of affecting bees and mm -hmm. you can do so much with them and then soul campfires are added and the sort of variety that comes up over the years as stuff develops so if you nail it you really nail it mm -hmm. uh, in that sense um let's let's move on to talking about uh your pet project the warden then because <laughs> um You've shared a few looks into the development process for this mob in particular, and it does seem to be a passion project for you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to hear more about the inspiration behind The Warden and The Deep Dark, because I feel like 
it almost goes back to that story you were telling about building your house above a cave full of zombies and not wanting to go outside of your door for fear of what was out there. I feel like the yeah. warden is almost playing into that a little bit. Do you want to do you want to tell us what the uh, the genesis of the warden was? <laughs> you're, you're absolutely spot on. And I mean, I've talked about it before that the warden for me is inspired by the first night that you play Minecraft. Um, but I think to be a little bit more specific, I think it's like, it's inspired by the first night of Minecraft, but trying to bring that experience back, but at a much later, later stage in your progression. Um, you know, once you get all of the best enchantments and netherite armor and netherite weapons and all of these crazy things in the game, which, you know, have gotten slowly and slowly more powerful over the game's development, you're kind of invincible. You're not quite invincible, but you're pretty close to it. And I'm wanting to bring back that feeling, but when you have achieved all of those things as well, um, almost like a constant that will, no matter what level you're at in terms of progression, this is always something that you have to fear. Um, and I think Minecraft has always been a little bit about fear. It's almost about having this, it's like the contrast between what seems to be somewhat of a beautiful, uh, you know, normal world that suddenly has uh so many surprises in it in terms of uh fearful opportunities um and i would just i love that aspect of minecraft it's something it's the, as i said it's the hook it's the reason why i played the game and so i wanted i wanted to experiment with how to bring that back and um the warden was at least the answer so far um but you know i did experiment with other things as well um, other different creature ideas and um, I think I'm pretty happy with the warden in the end because it it is something you can avoid whereas I, I don't think it would be fair to add something which is super scary but at all costs you can like it will just kill you no matter what um, with the warden at least through its system of being blind and not having you know only being able to detect things through uh, sound and vibrations at the very least you can be super quiet and then it becomes more of like a stealth mission in the deep dark and that's another thing for me is that the deep dark is inspired by what if we just had an entire byron where it's a stealth mission that that was the core for me um, how can we change the gameplay so much in one area versus all the other areas of the game? That's another reason why we also don't have other mobs in that biome as well. We don't have creepers, we don't have zombies, we only have wardens. Um, that makes it very different. I think it's an incredibly ambitious thing to do, to add so much in Caves and Cliffs that introduces new mechanics. I mean, with copper you've added things that age and with the warden and skulk sensors you've effectively added sound having a new importance and i think that's one of the things that keeps minecraft feeling like such a revolutionary game is the fact that these sort of new physical systems can be added in to to implement stuff like this and that you're also making it part of a an experience that involves a a creature like the warden um mm -hmm. without going too deep into the specifics i think when players saw the warden a lot of them were very keen on, well, if that's a really powerful enemy, I want to defeat it in <laughs> some way. And from the look at it that we got at Minecraft Live, which was, of course, a fairly early uh, iteration of it, it seemed like it was, you know, it picked up speed as it lumbered towards the player, but it was mostly a melee-focused enemy. And mm -hmm. so 
you know, the immediate thought as a player who has some experience with PvE <laughs> is all I need to do is place a row of blocks in front of it or maybe pillar up a few blocks and then mm. shoot it with a bow until it dies. So without going into specifics, do you have a plan for that? Is player strategy taken into account when you think about how the warden can defend itself and to what extent does that end up getting balanced to still make it a position that players can ever win yes there is a plan <laughs> uh, unfortunately for everyone uh the warden i would say and again i can't i'm trying not to promise anything here but sure i feel like the warden has to be a little smarter than other mobs because it has so much sensory deprivation compared to, for example, a zombie. Um, a zombie can see you and just attack. It doesn't need to hear things. It doesn't need to sense vibrations. Um, whereas the warden, if all it can do is just hear you, right? It's pretty easy to just sneak and never make a noise ever. And likewise, it's pretty easy to just you know, build a, a, a few blocks up and, and create a pillar and just attack her from above. None of these things are going to work. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. I love that, though. I, I really like the fact that that's the kind of thing that's being taken into account with a new feature like this, because, like, there is certainly a culture amongst players of finding, like, the cheese for stuff like the Wither, for example, where you can trap it in bedrock and it's relatively harmless to take down, and... I like the mm. fact that there are potentially strategies that will then emerge in the player community that counter some of the stuff the Warden can do, but it's still going to be something that we have an, an eye for either way. Um, so in terms of what you've been working on for part one of Caves and Cliffs, because of course the Warden has been delayed uh, and, until the future, uh, mm. how much of what we see in Caves and Cliffs part one have you had a hand in? Uh, how much of that was sort of you know features that you worked on individually or yeah how much of it is done in collaboration with other developers and is there anything in particular from that that you are especially proud of for me on part one what i worked on the most was actually some of the ore changes um first of all kind of collaborating a little bit with uh japa about you know how should we approach changing your ore textures for example um and he kind of asked me at one point like you know which of because he thought that it was really important that one of the ores had to keep the original texture shape to some degree and originally um he was like oh maybe we should it should be coal and i said no it's got to be diamond 100 percent diamond has to be the one that keeps the same texture shape the entire way through because i think it's so iconic like out of all of the ores that you could possibly find in the game, I think seeing diamond at the corner of your eye, that shape is just, to me, diamonds always. Um, and then of course, on top of that, I also uh, worked on the, um, the raw ores, um, which was interesting because it wasn't originally done just for the whole uh, fortune uh, byproduct of being able to use fortune on iron and gold. Although that was kind of something that was in our heads because we, I always found it strange that Fortune only worked on very specific ores and it was kind of a very techy reason as to why they didn't because iron ore dropped, you know, the block versus an actual item. Um, but the real reason was because in part one, we were going to have deep slate blobs um, around diamond level. And if players had to keep picking up, you know, iron and gold blocks that were both deep slate and stone, 
I think for an entire update that you have to play that until part two, that would get really annoying very quickly. So I thought it was really important for inventory management that players could actually, um, you know, mine it without having to have two separate slots for each types of iron and each types of uh, gold. It's honestly been fantastic being able to combine the raw ore items into blocks because that's effectively mm -hmm. like taking a compressed nine by nine block of iron ore blocks home and yeah. so you actually come away from those caving trips with so many more resources than you used to and not just because of fortune but because you can carry more of it with you the rest yeah. of the time i know some people who are definitely collecting all of the the deep slate ores with silk touch still because they're so interested in you know the ones that they can get now and can't get later but mm. it's it's really cool to see uh you know all of the ores working consistently with fortune versus silk touch i think that's going to be really useful for new players as well because you know you only have to describe ores one way instead of oh by the way there are these two exceptions which are iron and gold right mm -hmm. i think it it makes a lot of sense that everything behaves more or less the same way and when you describe fortune you don't have to you know give two asterisks that it doesn't work on iron and gold i i was quite proud of the or changes in the end but another second uh proud moment i guess was deep slate that was another thing that i worked on um and i think for me it's just because it's such a lovely set of blocks like it wasn't hard to work on in terms of the tech i mean jasper did all the work he, he was the the real winner here in terms of uh the the final result but deep slate is is lovely i absolutely love everything about that block set I guess it was originally conceived as the environment that you would find the warden in, right? Like looking yes. at the the sort of early mock-up that we saw at Minecraft Live, the block in the wall wasn't any kind of stone we had seen before. And mm. the the name at first kind of suggests the deep dark in, in the the deep connection that it has. Although it was called Grimstone originally. <laughs> and I, I feel like a few people, <laughs> I've noticed you responding to the, a couple of folks on Twitter who still seem to be uh, holding on to that name a little too tightly yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's always interesting with name changes i think that was the first time that we made a name change that was like truly controversial everyone yeah. really liked grimstone I, I like grimstone as well but i think the principle behind why we changed the name was a very strong one um because minecraft is inherently a creative game and maybe it's a, you know maybe it is a little too like uh strict of like oh you can't have feelings in block names uh, everyone pointed to crying obsidian and say like oh well, it cries come on but um i think it is important that you know because it is a sandbox game in the end how players use that particular block set you don't want to necessarily put connotations of it feeling grim like as in you know an actual emotion um whereas deep slate is a little bit little bit more neutral um you could put that in a build and if players know the name of it they're not going to instantly go to grim maybe so I guess we can rule out having happy little trees in Minecraft <laughs> in the future too. I'm sorry to disappoint. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like you've had a lot of fun working on the different things coming in, in caves and, and cliffs or that have come out in caves and cliffs even. Mm -hmm. uh, out of curiosity, uh, Maya F. wrote in and wanted to know what is the favorite project or feature that you have worked on in developing Minecraft so far? Oh, that's really tricky. Um, I think I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I'm going to talk about two things. I want to highlight very quickly the Strider. The reason why I really liked working on the Strider is because originally when I came into the office to work for the first time, 
I saw this big board of like all of these new features that are coming to the Nether update. And I was like, what is this? You know, the, there's like all of these features that I don't know about. And it was kind of crazy at the time. And we kind of went through them of like, you know, what all these features are. And eventually we arrived at the very end of the list to like a, a feature called the Strider. And everyone hated it. Everyone thought it looked ugly like in terms of the visuals they thought it looked modded um and they just they just didn't think it fit minecraft they didn't think it would ever work it would always look weird in the game um and i'm really happy that i took that on because i kind of started the strider almost like trying to prove everyone wrong that it could fit into minecraft and that um it could actually be cute instead of just being ugly uh, and I think there was a moment where I was showing one of uh, my teammates the baby strider as it was waddling around and it was on one of the uh, parents head and that was a moment where like it just clicked for them and they're like okay that's adorable we need this <laughs> in the game. I will say that I love the strider. The strider is especially in early game my favorite way to get around the nether and find the structures that you're looking for the nether fortresses and so forth i always saddle up a strider if i can find one now because mm -hmm. yeah I, and and i've i've developed such a a love for them that i i cannot possibly bear to kill them either <laughs> even though you know they drop string and they'll give you the saddle back if you kill them and that kind of thing i'm just like yeah. no, can't, can't can't do it i'm bringing two saddles because one of these striders is just walking <laughs> off into the lava with my first one yeah there's a part of me that wants uh, to add something which allows you to get the saddle without killing them because it's just too sad. It's, it's way <laughs> too sad. Um, but to answer the question again more specifically, I, I know it's not out yet, but I got to say that the most fun I've had is probably on the Warden because it's so challenging as a design task, working on something so different within the, the Minecraft environment and um, even at the tech challenges because I... Uh, did a lot of the tech myself with a lot of um, collaboration and advice from from other people in the Java team. Um, I just think it was it went through so many iterations. And one of the things that I am so excited to do is when the warden finally comes out, show all of the old iterations that I had because you cannot imagine how wildly different it used to be. Um, there was a point where the warden uh, was called originally it was called a stalker actually um and it used to have uh like this like white flesh with like holes in it and it used to be even like grimmer and gorier and we had to turn it down because it was too much um but th there's more and i can't wait to show all of that because it's it's been a journey to get to where it is now to find that perfect balance between this is scary but it's not going to make children never play the game ever again <laughs> i i'm really looking forward to, i think i'm probably looking forward to that as much as i am the warden now that you've mentioned mm. that because it sounds like you went from pan's labyrinth to studio ghibli and, yes. and somehow found a kind of sweet spot in between and i think for a start that goes to show going back to the the grimstone deep slate comparison like just how much difference the name can make because warden inherently implies that it is somehow guarding something whereas mm -hmm. stalker obviously has other connotations that you might want to avoid in a minecraft context anyway yes but, definitely yeah <laughs> but 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 is but is still like such an evocative name in itself um mm -hmm. and before before we wrap up here because you said the warden has gone through so many iterations like i i assume that you've had to collaborate quite closely with the art team 
uh, on the look of the warden. Uh, so, so what was much. the what was the process there? Because I imagine I imagine you know you're working on the tech side of things, but they have to come up with the visuals. How have you guided them through that process? Yeah, um, actually, so much, uh, especially with the warden. I, I collaborated with both uh, Mariana, who is one of our concept artists, and uh, Jasper, who was the the lead artist for Minecraft. Um, so Mariana, in particular, we kind of just sat together um, and just kind of like, first of all, I established what I was trying to achieve creative vision wise. Um, I, of course, laid out that this is meant to be scary, but also it's meant to be a little bit charming, a little bit cute, but not so much that people look at it and they just laugh like I, that was very important to me. Um, while it, it should be charming and it should be a, a little bit cute, I don't want people to not take it seriously. Um, but then I also don't want it to, you know, be too scary either. So it's, it's, it was a really tricky balance. Um, but a lot of it was basically just Mariana would try a few ideas. Um, she would show it to me and Jasper. We would give some feedback. Either I would like, uh, do, um, you know, give some direction of where we might head. Jasper might comment on, oh, um, this concept is really cool, but it's really hard to put in block form. Um, and it was just a lot of back and forth. And um, to Mariana's credit, what I really loved about the process working with her was that um, she would create like entire cards of like just 50 different designs of what the warden could look like. And every single one of them were just brilliant. Like everyone else like, oh my God, that could be a mob in the game. Um, and it was really hard to choose from like, you know, which is the direction we want to go because these all look actually fantastic in their own different ways. We will get a look at the Warden at some point, I'm sure, and uh, hopefully you'll be happy to come back onto the show and talk to us about the experience of meeting the Warden <laughs> in-game because, yeah, we, we all can't wait here, but uh, but we will have to, um, and, and it's going to be worth it. Um, but that's pretty much all we have time for uh, for this episode of The Spawn Chunks. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an incredible conversation, fascinating to get your take on so much of what we've talked about today. Uh, while you're still here, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, your own Twitter profile, any side projects or shout outs for teammates or friends, whatever you feel like plugging? Yeah, sure. Um, you can find me at uh, KingBDogs on Twitter. And in terms of shout outs, I just want to shout out my team, everyone at Mojang, uh, everyone in the gameplay team, Agnes, Corey, Henrik, uh, Nia, all of them have been absolutely amazing. And um, I can't wait to, to release part two eventually. It's going to be an absolute blast. Well, thank you so much once again. Uh, you can find links to all of the stuff we talked about today, including King Dogs' Twitter profile and a few of the other folks that we have mentioned today in our show notes, which are at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show was composed by me, and The Spawn Chunks is proud as ever to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, please consider putting some value back in by supporting us through patreon.com slash thespawnchunks. Joining our community there gets you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat, and it gets us closer to our next goal of a monthly Minecraft audio hangout where every month we'd sit down with our patrons and just open up a chat about what we've been doing in minecraft that month we're currently at 256 patrons uh, which is up from last week we uh, had 255 so one more has joined the fold uh, special thanks to our content engineers general pattern 82 hunter 555 jumbo sale and yitz for their support on this episode
Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spun Chunks on Twitter and Instagram. A personal recommendation, however, is the best way to share the podcast. Just poke a friend in the arm from a safe distance and tell them about The Spun Chunks and where they can go to listen to it. Those places include iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can email the show at spunchunkmail at gmail.com. And again, a big thank you to everyone that wrote in for questions uh, with uh, Brandon today. Really good questions. It was hard to pick the ones that made the show. The RSS feed is linked on the spunchunks.com and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash where I attempt to make sense of this crazy and wonderful game in two series, Empire's SMP and the Hardcore Survival Guide. I also stream at three days a week on Twitch, where I am mostly mining copper and chopping trees, and I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which just relaunched for Season 8. You can find us through a quick search on YouTube. Aside from that, I'm at Pixelriffs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I'm doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is at joelduggan.com. You can listen to my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment at thecitadelcafe.com. We talked about Sweet Tooth on Netflix and uh, Superman and Lois this week with Alistair. You can follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and, of course, Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I am building a medieval town on the Citadel Minecraft server. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite. Hail to the king.